You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, episode 114. The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help you along your way. Well, hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm here with my faithful compadre, Alicia. How are you doing, Alicia? Well, I'm happy to talk about what happens when employers get faced with this question that is very, very common, I would say, in terms of our practice, at least. We often have employers turn to us and say, I've supported an employee, a foreign worker for their temporary residents, we've done work permits, and now they want to apply for PR. They want to stay in Canada. They want to move here with their families permanently. What do we do? Are they eligible? And that is exactly correct. One of the more complicated factors when you're dealing with uh, especially global mobility is do you support a person for permanent residence in whatever country, Canada or anywhere, or do you just maintain a temporary status for them? And it's not an easy decision. We know that when individuals uh, come to Canada, like other countries, but focusing here on, on our domestic needs, when companies bring people to Canada and they set up companies, and there's always the thought, okay, is this person going to stay here or are they going to go back, especially with intercompany transfers? And of course, it covers, you know, this discussion covers any type of employer who wants to keep their, you know, their foreign worker long term. Well, you know, uh, th- this is something that companies have to wrestle with. And uh, once that individual becomes a permanent resident, um, we see a lot of our larger institutional clients not go out of their way to support people obtaining PR. And I've got my own feelings about whether or not the workplace is enough to attract uh, and retain the person without the work permit. But these workers become free agents. And when they are a free agent, If they don't like the situation they're in with your company, even though you've spent thousands of dollars to bring them here, maybe more than more than that even. And uh, and, you know, they decide, hey, I'm a permanent resident. I've got a great job offer from a competitor across the street. They're going to pay me three dollars more or they're going to pay me fifty thousand dollars more Then the company feels. Wow. You know, is this something that I want to pursue? Because as long as they're on this work permit for me, that's maybe employer specific, you know, they're not going anywhere. And uh, so it's a delicate balance, isn't it, Alicia? Yeah, because the flip side of that is we would hope that it's a great employer and they've treated their employee well and they've set it up properly from the very beginning. Because I think sometimes it comes as a shock to employers and to the employee that maybe they worked on a low wage and it was not a tier zero, one, two, or three job, and they did not realize that their options for PR are extremely limited. So we never want employers or employees to be in the situation where they don't realize from the very beginning that they don't have a very good pathway to PR. So if that's something that's important for the employer and the employee, I always talk about it up front. Exactly. Another aspect of this that comes up a lot with the clients we represent 
is in the context of an intercompany transfer. And, you know, I think of an experience just recently where a company wanted to promote uh, an individual that had come to Canada on an intercompany transfer work permit. And, and, um, we know that in the context of an ICT, the person has to be working in a substantially similar position from that from which they were transferred. And so when you bring someone in, say, as a software engineer, as an example, and they're a rock star and you love them and you want to keep them and you want to promote them and reward them for their hard work and give them a raise and all those kinds of things, um, you can't just move them from, say, a software engineer to your, you know, your, your VP of whatever or, or a senior managerial position or even a managerial if it pushes them outside of their original knock code. And so uh, some companies uh, make mistakes <laughs> and they do it before, you know, they're really authorized to do it and the work permit doesn't justify it. And, you know, others try to file work permit uh, change of conditions and then run into problems when IRCC refuses the work permit because they're like, wait a minute, this doesn't fit the parameters of an ICT. This is a different position. So companies are wrestling with this. And one of the solutions, you know, that, that we discuss with our clients is pathways to permanent residence. And we discuss with those really early on uh, th- these, <clears throat> these options. And you think in the context of Canada right now, obviously things fluctuate processing times change, circumstances change, eligibility requirements change. But if you think of someone who comes in, usually, you know, within the context of an intercompany transfer, we, we talk about express entry. Usually these individuals have fairly high human capital. <clears throat> and once they come and work for a year, they got a bunch of bonus points that usually put, set them up pretty nicely to, to be able to obtain permanent residence. So so you have them come and they, they work for a year and, and then they're at that stage eligible into the Canadian experience class, but they also get bonus points for one year of work experience. And when the company's supportive, another extra 50 points or so, depending upon the situation for um, comprehensive ranking system points, that would really boost them up, up into a range where they could apply. And currently we're seeing Canadian experience class applications, a lot of them get approved in less than four months. And if you choose not to do that and you're a company that says, well, we want to keep them, but we don't want to, you know, pursue PR, then you're faced with all of the lovely things that we've been talking about on the labor market impact assessment side of things. Okay, then start your advertisements. You have to show there's no Canadian and actually, you know, go through that recruitment process once again before you can promote them. So, you know, when we're talking about this transition plan, like, how do you approach it, Alicia? Yeah, and there's a number of things you touched on there, Mark, in in what you just said that are really important for companies to understand. And one of them is quickly just an ICT. You know, you have a cap, right? If you're on as a specialized knowledge worker, and so you can't fudge that cap by trying to get more years by switching them over to a senior managerial position, right? There, there's danger there. Um, and then so you look at those PR options. But if you were not under the IMP world, if you had, you know, brought that person in under an LMIA, then you need to take a look at what you actually put in your transition plan. Assuming this was a high wage position, then you would have told the government here's what we're doing to be able to meet that transition plan requirement. And just as a refresher, that transition plan might involve the measure could be supporting that employee for permanent residence. And if you do that as an employer, then you have to follow through. That employee has to apply for permanent residence and hopefully be granted permanent residence. And if that fails to happen and materialize, then 
the obligation for the employer is to go back and revise their transition plan to do three other measures. And so it's important that companies realize that they have to make good on their transition plan commitments as part of their LMIAs. And if they said they were going to actually support PR, that the applicant, the employee, does actually put in the PR application and the employer is supportive of it. And another, you know, I guess, practice tip I'd like to share is some people, they'll just make the bare statement, you know, or assertion. We will support this person in obtaining PR. So therefore, that's our transition plan. Do not do that. What you have to do is lay out a roadmap for the officer. If it's express entry, then do the calculation. Say, look, we're going to have them here for a year. Once they hit a year, they're going to get another you know, bonus 90 points or maybe less if they have a, an accompanying spouse. And that will put them over. And here's the rounds of invitation levels. And you spell it out for the officer. Make it easy. Because I've seen some people who bring people over on low wage you know, positions, low skill positions that don't qualify for PR say, we will support them in PR when there's really no meaningful pathway forward. And that's when you can run into problems. Well, and this is why making sure that everybody's setting it up from the beginning, and this goes to genuineness and eligibility for the work permit itself, but it also goes to making sure that everything's set up for PR properly. So make sure that that employee has the requisite levels of English or French, that they're going to likely be able to meet the cutoffs for express entry. Make sure that that person has the ability to get their education credential assessment. Make sure that that person, when you do the job description and job duties, that those are consistent from that initial work permit application all the way through, because it's going to cause problems if you've got one whole description of your knock and your your job duties in the work permit application. And all of a sudden, when that person applies for PR, it's something entirely different. You're just walking into misrep if that happens. So setting it up from the beginning is super important. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think if you've been practicing business immigration for any length of time, you realize that often the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing within the companies. And there may be the global mobility specialist or the HR uh, manager who is assisted in bringing a worker over and then their internal managers that are working with them, you know, they'll, when, when someone's a rock star, you're going to do everything you can to help their growth and progression within a company. And uh, unless you have a real clear plan in place, it can really cause massive disruptions for what the company wants to do. Um, when you have to tell them, no, you can't actually do that. You need to put the brakes on. You need to go back. You know, this individual you know, maybe hasn't worked the full year, so they're eligible for CEC or, you know, the the job offer that you think and they think is, you know, will work for PR, maybe doesn't. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, the whole concept of arranged employment in the context of, of various um, processes. But, but ultimately, having those discussions early on can save a lot of pain and suffering. And um, sometimes we have to you know, talk to our companies and say, look, we understand that they may be, they may become a free agent, but if you're a good employer and you're doing things right, you know, they're going to appreciate and they're going to show loyalty to you when you do show, you know, faith in them and, and support them in their permanent residence. And Alicia, there's a lot of benefits to transitioning someone to PR for a company. And maybe you can just kind of outline some of those. Mm -hmm. Well, remember that your employer compliance obligations end the day that that person gets their PR. As soon as they're a permanent resident, then 
you no longer have to provide auditable records on exactly how much they're getting paid because now they're a Canadian. You do have to provide records up until the day that they get their confirmation of permanent residence. Um, the other thing that happens, of course, is when you have another Canadian employee permanent resident, then if you happen to employ low wage workers, then you have a greater proportion of Canadians now. So if you're looking at your cap calculations, that's something that's going to weigh in your favor to have more Canadian employees and show that you're transitioning them through and, and making good on your on your requirements there and trying to actually train Canadians um, from within as well. So those are part of the benefits. The other thing is just making sure that you have a sustainable workforce. You have a way of making sure that you're meeting your labor market needs. And companies who understand this tend to do a little bit better in terms of their planning because they're looking at the long-term strategic goals. And we try to work with companies for basically an immigration business plan so that they understand, their HR teams understand what the options are for permanent residents because it is it is a benefit for people and employees are usually interested in pursuing that option if they like working in Canada. Yeah, and you, you hit on something that's really important too. No longer are those employer compliance you know factors um, at play when a person becomes permanent residents. And what does that practically mean? It means you can treat them just like any Canadian or obviously now they are permanent resident. So you don't have to worry about giving them a bonus. You don't have to worry about promoting them, changing locations. You know, uh, you know, there, you have complete flexibility in, in how you, uh, you know, how you need and, and want to use them with your company. So it's definitely something that employers need to, to factor in. And, and I think Mark, most employers don't even realize necessarily, wait a minute, what do you mean you can't promote a foreign worker? What do you mean you can't give them a bonus, right? Unless you've clearly set that out in the work permit terms from the very beginning, you can run into compliance issues and, and make sure to go back and take a look at our podcast on employer compliance. Yes. All right, let's take a little break to hear from our sponsor. Journey Business Plans is the leading immigration business plan writing service provider in Canada. With more than 10 years of experience, Journey has grown to become a trusted partner for immigration consultants and lawyers. Journey focuses on preparing business plans for a number of immigration applications, including intercompany transfers, startup visas, significant benefits, self-employed, PNPs, and so much more. Their main competitive advantages are reliability, responsiveness, and overall customer service, and I can attest to that. For those of you who don't yet know about Journey, ask your colleagues about them. They're amazing! Or even better, try out their work. You can visit their website at www.jorney.ca and mention you listen to my podcast with the code HOLTHYJOURNEY10. That's H-O-L-T-H-E-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y, number 10. And that'll provide you with a 10% discount on your very first business plan for new lawyers. We're so grateful to have Journey Business Plans as the title sponsor of this podcast. All right. So one of the things, Alicia, that we see a lot is um, employees or employers who come to us and say, Oh, I've got to put this letter together for to support permanent residence for this candidate and uh, or this employee. And um, you know, sometimes we represent the employees directly. Sometimes we represent the companies. But at the end of the day, 
it really depends upon the type of permanent resident stream that you're pursuing as to what that letter or what that support is going to look like and whether or not, you know, this, this, um, you know, arranged employment, if you will, uh, is, is something that a company may even qualify for. So let's start with the PNP variations. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens is companies and employees and maybe employees, independent counsel or consultants often tend to bandy about the term job offer, right? We hear this a lot. My, I need a job offer to support my permanent residence. And right away, you got to back up and figure out, well, what kind of program are you looking at? And if it's a provincial nominee program, then those vary significantly by province and by stream within that PNP program. So a few things to keep in mind is that every province will have eligibility criteria for the employer itself. So be very careful that the employer is going to meet sometimes their size requirements in terms of number of employees or profit. Um, If that company is operating in, for example, the greater Vancouver area or Toronto, um, they need to have different size requirements and different income requirements than if they were outside of the major metropolis metropolitan areas. Um, Sometimes there is going to be a very complicated wage calculation for what the the wage has to be to be offered in that province, which is going to be different than potentially what you are looking at under the LMIA median wage. So be careful about the wage that has to be offered. And this is a big one, efforts to recruit Canadians. So sometimes, a lot of the times, people don't realize for under the PNP programs, there is sometimes a requirement that that corporation show and demonstrate that they have tried to recruit Canadians for the job at the time that they try to submit the job offer support letter for that PNP program. And there are some exceptions depending on the program, but a lot of times there is a requirement to demonstrate that there has tried to be Canadians recruited for the role. Yeah, and in the context of an intercompany transfer, this never comes up until the very last minute because it's not a requirement that you show there's no Canadian or permanent resident to do the job when you're transferring someone uh, intercompany, you know, with an intercompany um, move from, from abroad to Canada. And so lots of companies are surprised by that when that potentially pops up as something they need to consider. Mm-hmm. And so those are things to, to think about right from the outset. The other thing is that often that job offer under a PNP program has to be valid at the time that the person's applying and at the time that that application is, well, sometimes, you know, there's a notification of interest or there's an expression of interest process and then there's a nomination and then there's an application and some of those are express entry linked and some of them are not express entry linked, but that job offer has to stay there the entire time. And if for some reason that employee is going to lose their temporary work permit in the meantime, because they no longer qualify, because they were on a PGWP, because they're not eligible for that category anymore, then the whole thing can fall apart. That PNP program will no longer support a nomination if that employee's job offer is not valid at the time that they assess the application. For ones that take longer, like you know the non-PNP express entry linked ones, you might be looking at a year, right? Maybe over a year that that job offer has to stay valid. Yeah. And sometimes when I am talking with employers, 
when an employee approaches us and says, Hey, you know, I, I, what are my options for permanent residence? And, uh, and I guess I should say when an individual applicant approaches us and says, Hey, what are my options for PR? And boy, I'm just not quite getting enough comprehensive ranking system points to, to receive, uh, an invitation to apply through express entry. Then we say, well, you're working for a company. Will they support you? And in some cases they are, you know, on employer specific work permits and, you know, they've met the one year and, and then it just comes down to, will, will this company, you know, follow through? Will they, will they support me? Will they, you know, will they, um, provide that letter? And, uh, it's, it's, you know, there's nothing worse than, you know, when an individual is just at the very tail end of their, their PR journey, and then things don't necessarily work out with the employer. And one point of, uh, I guess, point of advice I would give to any individuals that are listening to the episode, never, ever, ever just proceed forward and hoping IRCC doesn't know that you've lost your job because mm-hmm. that's misrepresentation. And we do see that on occasion as well. Well, how are they going to find out, right? Questions like that come up. And, you know, it's, it, it literally is, as far as immigration journeys for people, it, it can be, it can be horribly um, derailing when these things happen. But, uh, but yeah, just, just keep in mind, um, you know, we've had some experiences with the provinces and we know over the last stretch that, you know, IRCC has been really tough. And they've got these massive volumes of applications they're trying to process. And I'll be honest, the, the human element to this, although it's been really taking a beating over the last few years, seems like it's never been worse. In other words, the compassion, the understanding, you know, that people sometimes make some mistakes. They're just ruthless, downright ruthless. And now we're starting to see the same pattern even with the provinces. And especially now that their numbers have increased and they're starting to process more and they've got way more people just desperate for the nominations that they don't have to sit around and wait for someone. If there's something missing or something goes wrong on the permanent resident side, and then you try to go back to provinces, many provinces now won't, you know, they won't facilitate like they used to. And so it's really critical that both the employee and the employer are on board um, all the way through the process, all the way through to conclusion and the receive, you know, receiving of permanent residence. Mm-hmm. And just on that point, I mean, how do they know? How do they know when somebody loses their job? Well, technically, all Canadian employers should be putting in information to Service Canada and their records of employment and ROE, which is an official tax document that somebody's going to get when their employment is terminated. And Service Canada talks to IRCC. We know that, right? So they have records that they can easily check to see that. Also, as a matter of good practice, companies should be confirming with Service Canada if they had an LMIA that that person is has been let go, right? Has departed the company. And, you know, that might open up a compliance can of worms, depending on the scenario. So that's something to to keep in mind as well. But there is a positive obligation under the LMIA to update ESDC Service Canada in a change in circumstances. So that's something for employers to keep in mind. And I wanted to to tell a story, Mark, about, you know, when employers reach out to us often and they say, so we've been working for the employer and we also work for the employee in certain circumstances and we make sure that there is a joint consent letter that talks about our obligations to both and we have to of course be 
fully um, forthright with all parties and provide all the similar information. And we can't withhold information from one party if they say, hey, no I'm thinking of, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm thinking of leaving that employer or, mm. hey, I, oh. I got a DUI on the weekend. <laughs> So those are always interesting scenarios. But let's say an employer says, we're thinking of of trying to support an employee for their permanent residence. And that employee is coming to us and they're asking for these letters. You know, what's our liability? What do we have to provide? What kind of letters are they looking for? And are they actually going to get the points that they think they're going to get? And this circles back to what you alluded to earlier with arranged employment. And so I recently had a scenario where the employer said, okay, we're, you know, we like this employee, we're considering helping them with their permanent residence, they're asking us for all these things, their outside counsel or consultant is telling them, immediately, they're going to get 50 points if we give them this letter. And I said, okay, well, give me some more details about this employee. You know, we know that we haven't done an LMIA. So there's no LMIA that this employee is on. And if you're thinking of looking to transfer them under an employer-specific IMP program, like, you know, a C20, a reciprocal employment, or an intercompany transfer, or a CUSMA professional work permit that's employer-specific, well, that's great. You can do that but they are not instantly going to get 50 points. That does not qualify as arranged employment unless and until that employee has worked for a full calendar year, 52 weeks, 1,560 hours, at least 30 hours a week in that high-skilled job under that LMI-exempt but employer-specific work permit. And sometimes, you know, the consultant comes back and says, no, they get the 50 points right away. I'm sure of it. And I say, well, tell me which legislative provision you're relying on to say that. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a reality. Um, when individuals are, you know, looking to come to Canada, one of the things that they always, you know, say if they, you know, at least we get lots of calls and lots of inquiries, um, people who are looking for support from an employer, And Alicia, not only in the context of legitimate companies is there confusion and things like that, but people, and I wasn't intending on talking about this in the context of the podcast, but there is unbelievable corruption out there, you know, fraudulent job offers. And it's really, really important within the Express Entry course and things that we have, you know, within the Canadian Immigration Institute as resources, you know, we have sample labor market impact assessments. We have samples of what letters should look like. And even in the context of Express Entry, we get a lot of questions from companies that say, well, what does it mean, you know, that I will employ the worker for one year after they become permanent residents? Like, does that mean I'm bound and nothing can change? And, you know, that, that this, this support that I'm showing them, you know, it, it, it creates a, a fixed term contract. You know, w- what do you say, Alicia, to employers when they ask those questions? Yeah, and so it's really important to take a look at the legislation. And I've actually written a whole article about this. It's on our Healthy Immigration Law website. And if you go to blogs and you take a look, I, it's called Can I Claim CRS Points for a Job Offer in My Express Entry Application? And I break this down. Uh, but basically, the, the law, so under the Immigration Protection Regulations, we're looking at Section 82 Sub 1. And then under the Ministerial instru- Instructions, respecting express entry, uh, it's 29 sub 2. And so there, 
both of those things need to be read in conjunction, right? So arranged employment is something that does involve an intention by the employer to continue to employ that person for one year after they get PR. And that is something that the company has to express that they intend. It is their intent to continue to employ that person. And as long as they have not turned that into a fixed term contract, as long as they say, we, you know, it's our intention, we foresee that this should continue as an employment relationship, then that should satisfy the requirement. It does not need to be a term contract. It, you know, in most circumstances, it's permanent, indeterminate term that that people are looking at. But for sure, some of the employment law lawyers or corporate counsel get nervous about what is this language? What does that mean? Yes. And one other thing to factor in as well is, uh, is the fact that uh, when individuals are being required to demonstrate, you know, settlement funds, if they're coming to immigrate, um, arranged employment is a pathway to avoid the need for that. And in the context of permanent residence, the government wants to know that individuals, when they come here, if they're just parachuting in, um, and they qualify for permanent residence, say through Express Entry or PNP, and they're coming to Canada, that they have resources to support themselves when they get here. And so they create these very specific rules and requirements to try to ensure that there is support for this individual when they come financially. And obviously, if you have a job when you hit the pavement running, whether you're already here and go through permanent residence or whether you have an arranged offer of employment um, from a company who's agreed to give you a job when you get here as a PR, that's a huge, you know, I guess, reassurance or assurance for the government that this individual is not going to be here destitute looking for, you know, a job and, and depleting, you know, whatever limited funds they have. So, so these arranged offers of employment are really important for a number of reasons. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's critical, it's critical that if an employer doesn't understand that they do seek, you know, they seek assistance. And just to uh, also point out that in the show notes for this episode, wherever you're listening, we'll make sure we put a link to Alicia's blog post uh, on that topic for, for everyone. And I guess I should add quickly too that when we're talking about job offers, whether it's for the PNP or whether it's for Express Entry, those 50 points on arranged employment, you cannot be an employer who is on the list of ineligible employers. If you have had compliance action against you such that you made it to the blacklist or, you know, for certain provinces, it's that there's been employment standards code violations or health and safety code violations log against you. If you're on one of those blacklists, you are ineligible to support somebody's job offer. And that's usually true at the PNP. And it's certainly true for a federal program like Express Entry uh, for the list of ineligible employers back on under employer compliance. So that's another consequence for employers who are not following the rules. They don't get to support employees' permanent residence. And I guess one final note to make before we wrap up the podcast is, is that self-employment is also something that can prevent an individual from securing an arranged offer of employment. And that comes in many forms and we won't get into all the specifics, but even individuals, CEOs, executives who hold a, you know, um, hold shares in a company can result in them being deemed to, to be self-employed for the purposes of, of permanent residence, even the eligibility, let alone, you know, what constitutes arranged employment. So just be aware of that and, uh, and ask the right questions. 
All right, Alicia, this was uh, another great episode. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, in the next episode that we will be releasing, we're going to talk about uh, the exit of an employee, whether the employee is terminated um, or whether they themselves uh, separate employment and say, thanks so much, I'm moving on. We're going to talk about some of the things that you really need to know and understand in the context of those situations. But uh, thanks so much, Alicia. Great insight as always. And thank you for listening. Remember that uh, you can subscribe to this wherever you listen to your podcast, Spotify, uh, iTunes. And um, if you feel so inclined, leave a review and let everybody know that this is up and running again. So also, if you have any suggestions or any ideas, don't hesitate to reach out to Alicia and I and and uh, or if you'd like to join us as a guest, too. So and I want to end off as well with just thanking Journey as our as our sponsors. And I was able to meet Marianella, uh, Marianella um, one of the head head um, uh, executives of the of the company at our national conference in Ottawa uh, last month. And it was really good to meet her in person. And they're just really good people, really fun and and really care about what they do. So we're really happy to have them as sponsors of the podcast. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian immigration law policy and practice. If you would like to book a legal consultation, please visit www.holtylaw.com. You can also find lots more helpful information on our Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, where you can join Mark on one of his many Canadian Immigration Live Q&As. See you soon, and all the best as you navigate this crazy world we call Canadian Immigration.